Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. This is part three of what I've basically decided is a deep dive into everything I think is cool about Skunk Works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's pretty much what this, this is, well, is, what we think is pretty rad. There's and a lot of cool things that we are not covering as well, I'll tell you. The deeper I dive, the more I'm like, well, how many episodes could we ever do on this? But we're going we're gonna to keep it pithy. We're going to keep it as pithy as we, as we can. And today, we're going to talk about we should have done this one last, but I really want to do it, and I'm, and I'm impatient. The SR-71 Blackbird, the Blackbird, which is one of the coolest things humans have ever made that's, outside of space. Yeah, that's that's hard to argue with. It's, it really, it truly is. I mean, we have Space Shuttle, we've got the, the Saturn rocket, we've got all these beautiful things and crazy things, and then we have the SR-71 Blackbird. And you need to also realize it's cool because of, not only today, it's still very cool, but in the time that it was created and that technology that existed, it's just mind-blowing what is, they accomplished. It is absolutely – I'm trying to think of the right word. I was, I was thinking, like, is Mount Nazca word? No, Monumental. It's, it's just – it's absolutely incredible how important, revolutionary that plane was. And I th- we're going to talk about all the technical stuff. We will. And we also have uh, Buzz Carpenter, who is a, who is a pilot. Back in the day, okay. I'm going to run through some of his accomplishments here, just so we can give weight to how how amazing this dude is and how how informed he is on the SR-71. Okay, let's, let's hear about Buzz. Buzz was a member of the ninth class from the United States Air Force Academy and gained his pilot wings in the Air Force and flew a wide variety of aircraft with 4,400 jet flight hours. Wow. He served as a C-141 aircraft commander during the worldwide airlift, flew R-4 FCs in the Vietnam War, and became an instructor pilot. He was an SR-71 instructor pilot executing global reconnaissance missions and served as an F-4E fighter squadron commander. He flew the T-38 trainer, and finally his last flight was taking a U-2 above 70,000 feet one last time. He flew the SR-71 worldwide as an aircraft commander and later instructor pilot with over 60-plus operational missions accruing 777 hours in the Blackbird. He also served as a wing commander in Europe during Desert Storm and was the United States Air Force Black World Programmer in the Pentagon. From 83 to 84, <laughs> handling the money for the South F-117, F-22, and B-2 bomber programs, which, as we hear, amounted to billions of dollars. Billions, of dollars, billions yes. and billions of dollars that he was in charge of. At the end of his Air Force career, he was vice commander of the 2nd Air Force, which possessed the Air Force's intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance mission aircraft. Wow. So, is there a man... Better to talk about the SR seventy one than him. That's still around today. I don't think so. I think no. this guy is. I think this guy is it. Um, and if you were, if you are a Patreon member, you also got to hear from Jim Goodall, who is a historian on the SR seventy one. We have a two hour interview with him on the Patreon. If you'd like to sign up for that, it's five bucks a month, and you can hear another killer exclusive content piece. Great time to sign up. If you great time, already. great time to sign so up. So that forty four hundred jet flight hours. Do you realize how long that is? How, how long is that? Six months. It's over six months that this guy has spent in a jet flying it. It's, it's incredible. It's incredible. And I think he trained all the guys into the in from the from like the F four into the newer planes that were coming out. Right. And we we'll talk about that with a little with him a little bit as well. But I wanted to I wanted to try and set the stage a little bit because I think it's it's difficult to understand why this plane exists. Yes, this plane is cool. Yes, but, <laughs> but they didn't they didn't spend millions and billions of dollars what, because it's cool. What precedes every human 
like human construct of something like this. What precedes it? A some, need. A need of some right. sort. And the need here is war. War. Right. Or the imminent threat of war. Right. So what facilitated the massive investment in Lockheed Skunk Works? And why were there so many blank checks written from the 60s and 80s and even into today? Um, it was war. A titanic and unrelenting Cold War between freedom and totalitarianism. Freedom and communism. Those that would give their life for the rights of individuals against those that would trade the individual lives of others for the state. You have to remember... This was only a Cold War for us and for the USSR. For the Koreans, Vietnamese, and others, it was not. Good point. Much blood was shed on both sides as the USSR, USSR crushed forward in a relentless drive towards destabilizing the free, democratic, and capitalist world. Thousands, perhaps even millions, died. And this is, a lot of historians will go, this was the Third World War. Really? It really was the third. We had millions of people dead all around the world basically between uh, freedom and totalitarianism, the USSR wow. and their proxies versus the United States. Yeah, I always think of the Cold War as it, it was cold because nothing actually happened. No, it, but lots that of is stuff happened. Not it was only truth. a Cold War for the for the basically, well, it wasn't even a Cold War for us, I guess, because we went to Vietnam and Korea and lost men. Right. We shed it blood. It just wasn't a direct it war. It just wasn't. A, they call it a Cold War because it was a, it's seen as a war between us and the Soviet Union. And there was never a direct conflict there. So then they call it a Cold War. But in realistic terms, it wasn't. No, it was, right. it was It was war everywhere. And of course, there were issues with the Cold War. There were moral moments on both sides, as there often is with humanity. We made mistakes, sure. right? We weren't just this shining beacon on a hill who never made any mistakes. We made a lot of mistakes in Vietnam. We made mistakes in Korea. There was policy mistakes. But when it comes down to it, the Cold War was truly a battle between good and evil. Truman, who uh, took over... When uh, Roosevelt uh, left left office at the end of World War II, he's the one that confirmed mm -hmm. dropping the atomic bomb and ended World War II, right? Um, Truman was our first president to deal with the USSR. From the day he stood in Germany with Churchill and Stalin, there was tension in the air. Eventually, that divided country became the foundation for what would be the Cold War. War-torn countries were manipulated and preyed upon by the USSR, and their weaknesses were exploited all over Europe and uh, basically Western, Western Russia, Eastern Europe. Communist influence in Europe was accelerating, and as a result, the Truman policy, uh, foreign policy, shifted in a way that would echo for decades. Before America's Congress, President Truman makes the most momentous speech since the death of Franklin Roosevelt. He declares political war on Soviet Russia. In American eyes, Britain is no longer the bulwark against communist expansion. From now on, it means that anti-communist America will make its influence felt in European affairs. If we falter in our leadership, we may endanger the peace of the world, and we shall surely endanger the welfare of this nation. Great responsibilities have been placed upon us by the swift movement of events. Truman points the way to a new foreign policy. Timed to coincide with the sitting of the Moscow Conference, the speech means that the United States now faces up to its international responsibilities. America has decided that her true frontiers are in Europe. Thus was born the Truman Doctrine. And what the Truman Doctrine was, was just America saying, hey, if you're under threat from communism, the Soviet Union will help you in some way, shape, or form. I don't think it was really a declaration of war, but it was, it was basically saying, hey, 
we're going to counter this. And what happened at, go ahead. Why was this so important for us as United States to counter this threat of communism? Because it was, Stalin was. You called it truly good versus evil. When you look at what was going on in the Soviet Union, you had basically a godless society of slaves. And why then did this rise? What 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 pre what pre was the predecessor to the, the rise of communism? What do you mean? What do you mean? What's, if it's so evil, how did it spread so quickly? Because Europe was ravaged. Okay, so Europe had been destroyed. Right. Okay. By so they World had. War II. So you had basically you had communist groups in a lot of these countries like Greece and Turkey, and these communist groups were were taking advantage of the vacuum left by the war to basically take these countries and shift them into communist countries. And when you, the West is a capitalist country and freedom was saying, hey, we, we value at core, we value individual responsibility. We right. value the, a man's right to be able to make his own way and make his choices for himself and fail on his own. When you, I said it earlier, you have a, 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 a country that's gonna fight for the, for, for the individual and die for the individual. Mm -hmm. And you have the other side that's just basically gonna take the individual and throw them out with a the trash in order to maintain the power of the state. And at the same time that- I, I think you're, we have to give credence though to what communism stood for or what was, cause you, you are saying, yes, it was bad. But communism, the reason that some people, people did believe in it. The people that were proponents for communism didn't think what they were proposing was evil. So what they, well, I'm sure the people would feel differently. The okay. citizens of Russia probably don't feel the way that you're saying. No, but, at but the same I just time, want to understand. Like, yeah, I feel like we're okay, so at the same, well, yeah, this is, we have to simplify. We're not <laughs> doing point. a podcast Good about point. the Cold War. But at, this, at the same time, Stalin is making a speech yeah. saying capitalism is, is terrible, right? Capitalism right. causes war. We right. have to fight capitalism because all capitalism does is create chaos. And we need you to give up your lives and your means of production to the state in order to fight capitalism. And he makes the speech about, well, capitalism does, does uh, in industry in a certain way. Like Lenin was always like heavy industry, right? Okay. We need to pursue heavy industry right now. And Stalin was like, well, the, the capitalism pursues light industry first and then medium industry and then heavy industry. It's like, we need to get right into heavy industry. We need to, we need to sacrifice ourselves to the state and manufacture weapons of war. And then he goes into saying how many rifles we made, how many automatic weapons we made. Interesting. And it's, 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 it's a country that almost wants to go to war sure. versus a country that wants to do everything it can to prevent itself from going to war. Um, Stalin and the Soviet Union, so United Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, USSR. Uh, whoever came up with that was a, in a tongue twisters, knew that they could <laughs> never compete with the might of the West. Much of the Cold War, which lay at its inception in divided Germany, was fought via proxy. And it was there in various hells on earth that we found ourselves waging a war of technology with the USSR. Sponsored by the Colorado Citizens for Eisenhower and does not reflect the views of WOI-TV or its staff. Here now is Dwight D. Eisenhower. Let me first affirm for you my deep faith. I believe we can have peace. I believe we can diminish the likelihood of global war. That we can dispel the clouds over the future and lift many of the heavy burdens now laid upon us. But I would not be honest if I led you to believe that there is any easy way to peace. There is none. Today, into this interdependent world, 
has come a threatening force, the force of aggressive communism. It is cunning. It is godless. It aims to destroy all freedom. And most of all, yours and mine, because America is its final and chief target. The communist threat against the free world creates a need for political and military arrangements that will preserve the safety of all. The peace America seeks is not a matter of formula alone. It is a vital, living, driving force. That kind of peace will come if we work for it persistently and intelligently. When it does, then our sons can return to tasks of constructive achievement. Then, all our people of every color, race, and creed can be free to follow their opportunities for the full life to which all among us are entitled and to which every true American is dedicated. My fellow Americans, this can be done. We can begin now to make sure that it is done. No other people can take the lead. Just as we are the ultimate communist objective, so the ultimate answer lies with us. It lies with us because here, in this land of ours, free men have built for freedom such strong support as the world has never seen before. Faced with momentous issues, confronting danger, it is not in our American character to fail. We will not fail now. Hope, faith, and work will see us through. You have just heard Dwight D. Eisenhower speaking from Denver. This is the CBS Television Network. Okay, so basically what you what I cut out of that clip because it was like a 15-minute long speech is he's expl- he's basically explaining this is why we have to do this. And he goes into right. they're trying to seize countries with resources. They're, they're on the move. They're trying to take over, uh, over um, different countries because they have this, that, or the other thing, or they have a lot of people. They're really trying to just roll out this red iron curtain. Did right? you – I am not a Star Trek nerd. I'm not a Trekkie. Oh, no. But – are you familiar with the Borg? Yes. Okay, so the Borg <laughs> was actually written in Star Trek as an allegory for communism. It's pretty much true. Right? Yeah. So the Borg would assimilate people and countries, and once you're assimilated, you're all equal, you're all part of this hive mind that is the Borg, but it is total absence of freedom. Yes, it is. It is. When We did the we did an interview with Alfred Paul for, for Patreons, and he was talking about how weird it was when you were there that they were doing parades in the street for the state, and there's propaganda all over the place, yet and about how awesome it was, and it was just this great place, and there's paintings of Stalin and Lenin all over the place, yet the women are working in the streets sweeping in terrible clothes. The kids are wearing clothes that the previous cl- kids wore, and, yeah. and it just has this sense of... Uh, uh, so they used to have, like, they'd have a little backpack ready to go, with their stuff because they were just ready to get taken to the gulag. I mean, it was just, it was just, it was it's just a way of life. It just was, you just did what you were told. And if you didn't too bad. And the philosophy of communism never really came, has never really come, uh, come to fruition. Right. Obviously they're saying, well, all the means of production, everybody should just work together and just, and just be this symbiotic society. It never works that way because you have to constantly twist the vice down and, right. and, and you're basically violating the human nature of the drive of the individual when you're doing that. And more than that, competition. Com- Humans are naturally competitive. They, they are. And I, I have this one clip, and I'm just going to play it before I talk about, uh, before we move on. And I'm going to talk about Eisenhower for a second. But this is, this is a clip of Kennedy in, uh, in, in Berlin. Okay, so he's speaking to Berlin at the Berlin Wall. 
to all mankind. Freedom is indivisible. And when one man is enslaved, all are not free. When all are free, then we look and look forward to that day when this city will be joined as one and this country and this great continent of Europe in a peaceful and hopeful globe. When that day finally comes, as it will, the people of West Berlin can take sober satisfaction in the fact that they were in the front lines for almost two decades. So you have to remember that this is, if, if there is something worth fighting and dying for, it is a human being's right to, to have rights protected by the government. Your rights are protected by the government, not granted by the government. That's really the two cornerstones of these two societies. You have America mm, where your rights, your rights are uh, protected by the government. You have a Bill of Rights. Mm-hmm. We are going to protect these rights for you. They're not in, in the Soviet Union. They're saying these are the rights that you have. That okay. we have given you. That we've, yes, that we've given you. Not that they're not unalienable, predestined rights given right. to you by God. Right. Right. It's not a religious thing. I'm just saying these are rights that you're born with. They, they have nothing to do with government. Right. You just are. You're a human being. You have these rights. Okay. That's, that's not as much so much anymore in America, but that was kind of what it was founded on. And you have the communists that say, hey, you know, we're going to allow you to do these things. And you're going to do these things. These, it's you can get into the like you can get into positive rights versus negative rights and all these other different things. But that are the, th- those are the two pillars of the societies. And you can hear that. Obviously, I can't play Stalin because it's Russian and I don't speak Russian. But you can hear <laughs> these three presidents basically saying, "This is pure evil, and we need to defeat it hmm. by any means necessary." Yeah. And I think that's evident by we went to war in Vietnam, we went to war in Korea. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of other motivators in there other than I'm, when I talk about the moral issues that America has had in, in different wars, especially right. through the Cold War stuff. Yeah, it's not always, you know, pure that as a, and driven snow. Right. Um, it was under Eisenhower that we saw the meteoric rise of modern Lockheed Skunk Works, as we know it, in avionic espionage. His steady hand and oversight brought forth an aviation revolution. Eisenhower's philosophy and perspective was unique, being the general that is often seen to have brought victory to the Allies, ending World War II. You could tell he was a man who had borne the weight of war, seen it, felt it, and lived it. He didn't want it. But his push against communism is a testament to a belief in the American military except belief in American military exceptionalism, but only when it's protecting the heart of America. It was then, in 1952, Kelly Johnson was appointed chief engineer of Lockheed's Burbank, California plant. There, he would spearhead the development of the two unique and legendary aircraft, the U-2 and the SR-71. And they were absolutely legendary aircraft. However, before we get into them, let's take a moment to talk about our sponsor, Petrolbox. Petrolbox is a monthly service specifically made for the automotive enthusiast. Each month, they carefully select items including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, and publications to be sent right to your doorstep. It's sort of a curated selection of the latest and greatest gear in the automotive industry. And I was just talking to uh, their founder, 
and I may have some inside information, which I'm not sure if I'm able to share yet. Well, then don't. <laughs> I'm going to tease it that they're going to they're going to basically curate it to what you're into now, right? Ooh. So if you're a JDM guy, if you're a Euro guy, American Muscle, I like that, right? So it's yeah. going to even be more curated. What if you like Vespa for you? That is not a thing. <laughs> Vespa box. <laughs> <laughs> There's two different levels of subscription to choose from. The Petrobox Basic costs less than twenty bucks a month, while the Petrobox Premium gets you even more gear for $39.95 a month. Check them out at mypetrolbox.com and be sure to use the code OVERCREST at checkout to get $6 off your first month's order. So, Chris, the U-2 was an amazing aircraft, one that flew at 70,000 feet, which was a height that was above the range of Soviet missiles when the aircraft was designed. However, as we'll hear in another episode, the Soviet missile technology did advance, and the U-2 found itself vulnerable to ground attacks. That's when, in 1957, the CIA approached Lockheed to build a plane that would be absolutely untouchable to Soviet forces. Project Archangel, as it became known, Great name. began right away, with the goal of flying higher and faster than anything that had ever come before it. By leaps. And bounds. And bounds. The entire plane was built around the propulsion system, which alone was a miracle of engineering design. For one, no turbine-driven jet can operate with supersonic flow at its inlet. It just doesn't work. It just creates too much pressure. It just can't function. Yet, this plane was powered by the Pratt & Whitney J-58 turbojet. These off-the-shelf jets could only provide 17% of the thrust required to fly Mach 3.2. Is Mach 3.2 what they wanted? Or what were they? They're just... That's what the cruising speed is for an SR-71. Right, but what were they? Do you know what they were after? What they the CIA after, wanted? They were I think, Mach 3. Okay, so they wanted over Mach 3. Yes. So how on earth did the Blackbird achieve such insane speeds? Well... In front okay. and around... hold on. <laughs> I just want everybody to be ready because... Everything Jake is going to explain to you about how this engine works, it is. I want you to look at your computer, look at your phone, and then throw them out the window <laughs> and get a slide rule and, and a, a drafting and a yeah. drafting table and a chalkboard, and just imagine doing this by hand it's and amazing. mind with a slide rule. Yes. So these J fifty eight turbojet engines. One in each wing, or wing nacelle, as they're called, is what were used. And these were basically off-the-shelf engines that had already existed. Front and around, in front and around these engines, however, were a complicated, convoluted system of airflow management ducts. Like little flaps that open. Flaps that open and boundary layers. And it's so insanely complex that I'm not going to even describe it here. What we should do is we should post in the show notes or or something, like this one video we found that's just like, here's the airflow diagram. of, And you're like, what? And it's like 15 minutes long of how the air moves through this engine. At one point, the air goes from supersonic and then reverses backwards over the nose cone to form a boundary layer so that the flow doesn't stick to it. It's just insane how this stuff works, and I don't understand how these engineers came up with ideas. We're like, oh, well, obviously you have to do that. Yeah, you need to reverse the supersonic jet Right, wind. exactly. Okay, so this complicated system of airflow management actually allowed the propulsion system to transition from a primarily turbojet engine to a ramjet engine in mid Flight. So what's the difference between a turbojet and a ramjet? Okay, a turbojet is what you think of where it has the, basically, it's a jet engine where... With the little turbine thing? That, yes. Is that what I see when I'm when I'm at the airport waiting for Those my plane to come in? Those are technically turbofans. Okay. 
because it's a big fan that's doing the propulsion. Okay. A turbojet is more like inline compressor than the uh, the combustion section. And then the turbine, which is actually the then, um, it generates the power to <laughs> right. then use on the compressor. Gotcha. Stage. Okay. Yes. So that's the jet. A ramjet, as you can probably guess from the name, relies on ram pressure to operate. That's why you have like ram air hood scoops on cars where yeah. it pushes the pressure. Yeah. That's basically what this is doing, but at Mach 3. <laughs> right. Same exact thing. So ram push, ram pressure is simply the pressure that occurs at the plane as the plane rams itself through the air. So as the engine moves through the sky, it funnels this high pressure air inside. But before entering the combustion chamber, the supersonic airflow must first be slowed down. And this seems so counterintuitive. Yeah, to let's me. get that fast air in there. Let's get right. it in. Let's get it out. And let's so instead, you have to slow the air slower than the speed you're going to then speed it up faster than you're going. Yeah. It doesn't make sense, but it has to do with the supersonic pressure waves. Right. Because we all we already know that when you break the sound barrier, it causes a lot of problems with structural integrity and things start to shake around. Yeah, and, and I am not a fluid dynamic engineer, so <laughs> I'm not going to go into this or pretend I even know. But I'm going to tell you, they slow down this airflow. This basically acts like the compressor stage of a normal jet engine because as you slow it down, it basically compresses the air, which elevates the air pressure before it enters the combustion chamber. Once the air enters the combustion chamber, it's mixed with the fuel and ignited. It expands and accelerates rapidly again once it exits out of the nozzle at the rear. So the main engineering model of this whole complex system, besides all the ductwork, is the inlet spike. It's an iconic feature. On yeah, the yeah, yeah. You see you it sticks right out of the engines. jet engines, you just see like a big intake opening. Right. Where These the, have spikes. Yeah, and they move in and out. Yes, it's capable of moving forward and backward by 0.6 meters. This adjusts the inlet and the throat area, which controls the airflow entering the engine. It also keeps the position of the normal shockwave at its ideal position between the inlet throat and compressor, which is, of course, Chris, the most efficient position for a supersonic shockwave. Obviously. Yeah. That's because it minimizes the energy loss due to drag as the airflow comes over the shockwave, which, again... So, basically, they're using this cone to just manage the position of this shockwave inside the engine. Right, and it boggles my mind that these engineers were controlling supersonic shockwaves to power these engines with chalkboards and slide rulers. Yeah, I'm bad at math, Jake. <laughs> I couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle it. So one fun fact about these planes that most people have heard, at least somewhere in passing, is that they would leak fuel on the runway. Which sounds ridiculous. Yes, it does. Until we learn later that the fuel is not that combustible. Yeah, they used especially formerly at a JP-7 rocket fuel, basically. It's a, right. It's an aviation fuel that is... Um, it has to be up to like 700 degrees in order to ignite. And we'll find out how they ignited that fuel in our it's interview amazing. with Buzz. It's yes. pretty cool. However, the SR-71 did indeed leak fuel on the runway. So it used something called a total wet wing fuel tank system, which meant that the fuel was not contained within separate fuel bladders. It was There's no gas tank, Chris. This was a weight savings measure. So literally, a... The entire plane was the fuel tank. Exactly. So, so it separate out, it, metal fuel tanks would add too much weight, and lighter plastic tanks that you would, would assume you would do, use, they would just melt because this thing got so damn hot right. from aerodynamic friction, which I'll get to in a minute. But the fuel tanks were basically comprised of the skin of the plane itself. So the exterior panels were sealed at every gap. However, because the titanium skin of the plane expanded and contracted with every single flight, thermal expansion and contraction, the sealant would 
simply break down. And I saw a chart when I was researching this stuff that has like allowable variances for fuel leaks. Yes, <laughs> like it was this. actually a chart where yeah. they would go up and say, okay, how fast is fuel literally dripping out of this thing <laughs> on the runway? And they said, somehow okay. they'd measure it and say, okay, no that's, allowable. That's, allowable. that's allowable. We don't need to rebuild this yet. So the mechanics would attempt to repair and reseal the skin between flights, but it was basically impossible to keep the thing from leaking until the airframe got up to operating temp. I mean, it would expand. Yes. Yeah. So speaking of fuel, this plane was basically one giant fuel tank. As we've talked about, the whole thing is a fuel tank. But what you don't realize is this thing is so huge because it needed to carry that much fuel. Its dry weight was 25 tons, which is astronomical to me. That that's, that's a heavy. plane that, that's that a, can fly. It's a 40, 50,000 pound plane. However... It weighed an astonishing 63 tons when fully fueled. So 40, 80,000 pounds of fuel. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder this thing costs $85,000 an hour to operate. Yes. Uh, one of the biggest engineering challenges of the aircraft, as I mentioned, was heat management. So due to air friction at Mach 3.2, the nose. I can't feel any air friction. <laughs> I'm moving like, my what's arms like, what around. What are you doing over there? Chris is like running and. and I can't feel any. Yeah. I've never seen air friction be warm. You must really have to get up there in some speed to That's feel some point. air friction. That's a good point. At what point do you feel like friction warming you? Probably Mach speed? two. You don't. You don't think you can get up to like 200 miles an hour, stick your hand out the window, and be like, "Hey, getting warm, getting a little warm." <laughs> probably not. No, I, I don't think you're so. Probably right. Uh, but due to air friction at Mach 3.2, the nose of the SR-71 reached 600 degrees Fahrenheit, while the engine nacelles would reach 1,200 degrees at the back. What's a nacelle? The nacelle is basically the uh, container like the in a wing that that ha houses the engine. Okay. Okay. So it's just like the trailing edge of the engine housing. Exactly. Okay. Yep. Uh, to withstand this, over 90% of the aircraft was constructed from titanium. And where do you get well, titanium? Because the United States is not a huge titanium. That's the problem, Chris. The U.S. didn't have the ore supplies required to manufacture titanium. It turns out that it's the rare. Largest, titanium is rare. It's not all over the place. It is. And the ore, I forget what it's called, that it's required to make it. Like, it, it's a sandy material, and it doesn't naturally occur many places. Right. So it turns out one place where it does occur, and the largest material supplier of titanium was the USSR. Okay, that's a problem. <laughs> Working through third world countries. Hey, Bob, why don't you get in that U-2 plane and find us some titanium? Yeah, they fly no, around. That's no, that's not what they did. No, well, okay. This, I feel like, should be a movie in itself because they worked through third world countries and bogus shell companies and operations that the CIA set up to purchase enough of this material to build these planes. So the Soviets unwittingly sold us the titanium we were using to spy on them. They should have spent more time figuring that out instead of building gulags. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So what what were you building titanium out of at the time? Because titanium wasn't like a wasn't a thing. I mean, nobody was building anything out of titanium. What, no. What, what was it used for back then? Do you know any other things? I, I don't. It's the properties are. It's very light. Yeah. It's very, very light. Very strong, strong. But moreover. What they were most interested in was its resistance to heat. Its thermal capability. Right. Because so th most stuff was built steel, out of steel. Then it was aluminum. Most right. planes were aluminum. Yep. Most which all planes were aluminum. Not going to work out so well for the this. The problem is, A, it would melt, and it would expand before it melted. Right. So the Blackbird actually, from 
nose to tail expands over six inches during flight. Jesus. Due to that thermal expansion. With like steel or aluminum, it would have been much, much greater than that. So I don't think they would have melted. I think the uh, the melting point of aluminum is like a thousand or something degrees, but I think it's well, the Well, the back of the nacelles would have been just liquid then. Because well, they were at 1,200 degrees. That's a great point. <laughs> Not great, that's a great Chris. point. Can you also imagine, like, structural integrity? Like, looking out the wing's getting a little floppy. <laughs> Not good. Not, Not good. good. Yeah. And what's interesting is they hadn't done a lot of manufacturing with titanium. I don't have this in my notes, but I remember reading that they tried to build and press these wings with titanium out of, like, steel presses, and the steel would leave some sort of a boundary layer or chemical process in the titanium that would weaken it. So they had to make all of their own machining out of titanium to make the titanium to make the Blackbird. And this is all discovery as we go type of stuff, which I think is really, really awesome. So besides the titanium construction, there is one more obvious feature of the plane that was necessary to dissipate heat, the black paint and they painted it black just to scare people right because it looks scary it does is that that's probably that's not, not true no chris kirchhoff's rule of radiation as it's known states that any object that is an effective heat absorber is equally effective at dissipating heat aha uh-huh. now i'm gonna go in depth sounds here. like a few girlfriends i've had in the past <laughs> <laughs> don't i'm not gonna go there not gonna go there um normal planes you don't want to paint them a dark color because as we know the sun will yeah. then basically radiate It'll that. just bake it. It'll yeah. bake it. So apparently the Concorde was painted dark blue for a Pepsi campaign back in Yeah, I've the seen 60s. that plane. Yeah, it's blue and it says Pepsi all down right. the fuselage. That was a terrible mistake because it just cooked the plane oh. up at high altitude. I see, plus that thing's moving pretty. That thing can break Mach. Yeah, like but Concord I don't think was- that had any sort of heat dissipation issue. So you're right. Oh. It probably is around Mach 2 when you start getting yeah, heat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, however, the Blackbird the heat that it created from aerodynamic drag was so much greater than like what the sun would bake it to do that it actually worked in reverse. So okay. because it's black, it is also dissipating heat faster than it would basically gain heat. Yeah, it was like a ferrite paint. paint. It had iron in it. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, so while it may seem counterintuitive that black plane would be cooler, the paint actually helped to radiate the heat away from the airframe itself. It just goes to show that with every single component of this machine... Form followed function entirely. And while I could go on for hours about the technological marvel that this plane was, we'll instead hand it over to the man who knows firsthand what it's like to fly one of these marvels. Yeah, let's take a moment to talk about our sponsor, Oberk Car Care. Oberk Car Care is your source for professional detailing compounds and supplies. This is research tested and developed by professional detailers themselves. These are guys that are passionate about detailing and know firsthand what makes a good product. They really are great products. They're used on just about any paint finish. It's a simple, foolproof, two-step process. I shouldn't say just about any paint finish because I doubt Oberk would be able to polish the Blackbird. Yeah, no, maybe not. Well, they may, they might, but it pro- might that not probably dissipate wouldn't heat. work for the heat dissipation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right now, Obrick is offering a whopping twenty percent off your order when you use the code Overcrest. Now, this discount code is good not only on OberkCarCare.com, but also on DetailedImage.com and CarSuppliesWarehouse.com. Please go check these guys out today. All right, let's move on to Buzz Carpenter. Now, we're going to split this episode up, so we're going to have the first section of the episode out today and then we're going to release the, the uh, part two of it tomorrow so you won't have to you won't have to wait a full week to get the second half uh without further ado my interview with buzz carpenter
Hello. Mr. Carpenter, how's it going? Just fine. Just call me Buzz, Chris. Oh, Buzz. That, that works great. I'm always, uh, I always try to respect my, I was raised to respect my elders. So <laughs> There's, there'll probably be a lot of sir and mister just by having uh, I know people have, people are habit, but uh, yeah, I, I just encourage people to go by Buzz. I'm a more, uh, I, I, I see myself as more uh, laid back and that's why I use it. Why don't you give us a little bit of a background on how you became a reconnaissance pilot in the first place? Like maybe what what was your life like when you decided you wanted to join the Air Force? My dad uh, graduated University of Minnesota there in uh, Minneapolis with an aeronautical degree. World War II, he worked uh, a number of projects uh, testing uh Navy planes and and also testing uh, enemy ca- captured enemy airplanes. And when the war was over, he was sent to uh, Brazil to teach at the Brazilian Air Force Academy. Well, so there's an aeronautical background there. My godfather was uh, aeronautical engineer from Minneapolis uh, uh, University of Minnesota. One of my uncles was also an aeronautical engineer. So you kind of see, I kind of grew up. Uh, kind of surrounded with aviation, and my dad traveled a lot uh, with uh, on the airlines early on. When people there weren't that many people traveling, like in the fifties, and I still remember going to the airports. And, Back when everybody uh, still wore a suit when they went to the airport to get on a plane. That's exactly right. When it was a really a thing, and I just remember being fascinated uh, by flight. And as a probably in either elementary or early junior high school. When you used to go to the movies, they used to have uh, a news uh, movie tone, and they'd give you the news of the day. Well, and this one time, it was the dedication of the Air Force Academy. And I said, you know, that I'd kind of like to – that looks interesting to me. So I kind of kept it in the back of my mind. I went through high school, applied too late, applied in the senior year of my high school. So uh, I had no idea. And the Academy was brand new. They didn't have information. We didn't have an internet. You know, you didn't know where to call. The, they just hadn't gotten their feet on the ground. Well, long story short, ended up at the academy. Um, while I was there, I spent, uh, we had like an internship one summer. We could go for three weeks and, and, and be like a, we called them a third lieutenant. You know, normally when you're commissioned in the, the Army or the Air Force, you're a second lieutenant. Well, this is, you're a cadet and they have you go out and work with, a uh, junior officer. Well, I worked at the test squadron at Edwards Air Force Base, <laughs> and lo and behold, they're they're starting to test uh, the Blackbirds. So this so, is well, this is like late fifties, early sixties. This is uh, would have been nineteen sixty five. Okay, okay. Because the first SR came to Beale Air Force Base, uh, and that's the Beale. So that's for the operational guys to learn to. Uh, train on it in 1965 all right so they're still doing tests and manufacture down in southern california do you remember the first time you saw one when you were first, the third lieutenant do you, do you remember seeing it for the first time and how it what impression it made on you i saw it come in um it came in to did a traffic pattern landed and it parked out in front of the squadron where i was working uh you know it was, it was very classified and it was Edwards was a had classified areas of the base, and I just saw this airplane that looked, you know, 
people today think it's uh, they can't figure out if it's an airplane or a spaceship. And back in 1965, you looked at it and you just wondered, was this something, you know, out of space? Because it, it was so different. And it's not a small airplane. Uh, people think of something that flies fast that it would be like a 104, the Mach 2 airplane. You know, very small, uh, small wings. Like a little dart, like just like a little, like a little it's sharp. It's a dart. Yeah. Uh, matter of fact, taking off in the, I had one flight in the 104 chasing the X-15, if you can imagine, when they were launching it, uh, I was chasing it uh, with a uh, an X-15 pilot, uh, piloting the 104 uh, on the recovery part of the uh, X-15 test flight there. But the 104 accelerated because of its power, like I would later experience with the SR. Because when we took off, uh, the airplane held 80,000 pounds of fuel. But because of the wear and tear on the tires and some aerodynamic issues, we used to take off with 40,000 pounds. Well, you got two engines that are each producing 34,000 pounds of thrust. So when you lit those afterburners, Chris, um, that airplane was pushing against you. If you can imagine, uh, I tell people when I give it to, I said, I wish I could have you experience a takeoff. I said, because it's only 20 seconds from the time you bring the power forward and release the brakes in 20 seconds, you're going to be like a race car. You're going about 4,500 feet. You're doing 240 miles an hour and you're lifting off and you're going to cross through 20,000 feet, less than two minutes from the time you release the brakes. I mean, it's a very powerful airplane. Um, and I also wish I could take them up to altitude because you can see, almost 350 miles in any direction. You can see the curvature of the Earth. It's absolutely beautiful. Is it kind of like and where is it? Can you see the blackness of space, too, from that height? It's black. It's black above you. Matter of fact, uh, you know, the, 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 the black paint on the SR-71, you know, has ferrite uh, material in it that helps uh, defeat radar when it strikes against it. But also, Pete Law, who was the thermodynamicist for uh, Kelly Johnson, convinced Kelly and Kelly would like silver airplanes. And, and Pete said, you know, if you let me paint it black, I can reduce the temperature by about 50 degrees when you're at cruise because black, if you, I'm sure growing up in Minnesota, what's the color of your pot belly stoves to heat things? They're black because black radiates heat the best. So by painting the airplane black, but Kelly said, well, it adds weight. Well, plus if you're a Soviet, <laughs> if I'm a Soviet and I see a silver plane, I'm like, hey, there's all kinds of silver planes. I think of this black plane in my head, the psychological impact of what that plane looks like, especially in black. I mean, it's a total side effect of the color, but wow, it looks intimidating. It's hard because you're looking from below because that's where you're going to be. You're looking up against the black sky of right. whatever shade of black it's at. But also the paint on the SR is is not shiny. It's it's a dull uh, kind of finish purposely. So you're not getting a reflection. You may get a little glint off a canopy, but the canopies aren't that big. So you've reduced another way that you can, you know, uh, be seen uh, by an adversary to try to try to find you. Though. So what are we they never... visually? What are they trying to do to find you? Because you're 15, 15 miles up in the air. What besides radar? Is there anything they can do to find you? Are they just sitting there with binoculars, just hoping that they're going to catch you? flying by or what on long range radar that could get 
a general idea where you might be. But what they were, what the Soviets particularly would be looking for when we'd be flying off their north coast, we never overflew Russia, but we flew right on their border because of our navigation system, which I'll mention uh, shortly. Um, just like you see when you go outside and you see airliners go over and you see them leaving a contrail because the exhaust is freezing. In certain conditions, very cold, uh, you can be flying along at 80, 84,000 feet and you're leaving a contrail. So that means the person below you is doing exactly what you're saying, picking you up visually. Right. Because they can see the exhaust trail that you're leaving behind. And it doesn't mean they've got any better probability of intercepting you, but at least now they have a much better idea where you're at. Well, smile um, for the camera is probably what they're saying at that point. Smile for, now, we <laughs> talked to some of the uh, – when Belenko defected uh, from the Soviet Union, and he was a Foxbat pilot. Now, Foxbat was our greatest uh, adversary, per se, trying to come up because he had the greatest capability. He could get up oh, probably 75,000 feet, maybe 80. He could get up to Mach 3, but he could only stay at Mach 3 for about 10 minutes at most. And then he kind of limped home because the engines had to be replaced. They'd been over 10. <laughs> uh, so it wasn't a great. And most of the Fox, most of the Soviet pilots had to follow what the ground controller was telling them. So we'd be flying along, and, and you could look out there, and you could see the contrail of this fighter in afterburner trying to come up and, and make an intercept. But very often, they were doing what we call a stern conversion. They would be a beam us, and now they're going to make a turn, a 180-degree turn, and try to come in behind us. Well, that 180-degree turn is going to take them like, let's say, uh, three minutes. Well, in three minutes, I'm 100 miles down the road. Right. So uh, as far as I'm, I know of, I know in my own personal case, I never had a missile fired at me. I had a missile fired at me when I was flying RF-4s over Viet in Vietnam or North Vietnam with some others, but uh, there were missiles fired at the, the SR, but, you know, the closest one that I'm aware of was about a mile and a half in trail because it was such a difficult target to, uh, you know, acquire. And then what was the speed, what's the speed of a, of a missile? If you're going Mach 3.3 .3 or 3.2, whatever in a Blackbird, what is the missile chasing at? What, what velocity? About the same speed, maybe a little bit more. So they have to lead you uh, per se, and that that gets back to they've got to be able to track you on radar. But the piece that it's like shooting that, skeet then at a clay pigeon. Exactly right. <laughs> and the problem, and the problem for them, is that once you know we get an indication in the back seat because that's where the the defensive warning gear was. You get a warning that they were tracking you, and then if they launched a missile at you very shortly thereafter. Um, we had an automatic uh, defensive systems would come in, would be our primary. And basically what it did, Chris, it put up a barrage and a missile site on the ground or a fighter in the air, if it launched a missile, uh, could no longer talk to its missile. Well, think about it. Back in the 70s and 80s, our missiles did not, they were not autonomous. They're not like the ones we have today. You had to guide the missile the whole way. So if you can't talk to the missile, whatever your last command of the missile is what it's going to do. It doesn't 
does, doesn't have any internal guidance to know where to turn. So basically the missiles went stupid. Um, and uh, obviously frustrated the, because uh, they tried a couple of times on barrage. They just fire a bunch up. Uh, when you talk to Tony Bavacqua, I think Tony, yep. um, he was an earlier case and, and he was flying over North Vietnam, uh, which I didn't because the Vietnam War was already over by the time I came in the program. Um, I think he had a barrage attack one on one of the flights he was on. And I think they actually saw the missile Either they saw the missile coming up or they saw it on the film later on when they were reviewing it. Uh, but, uh, none were ever shot down. So, Did they uh, kind of just go, well, I guess they're just going to take our picture because there's really nothing we can do about this? Um, they didn't really have much of a choice, it sounds like. They didn't. And along with the airplane, we had no control over the shock wave that came off the airplane. And if if you've watched the news reports when the space shuttle was coming back, because look at the space shuttle shape. The space shuttle shape is a double delta, just like the SR-71, because the forward body, the genius of Kelly Johnson, from the wing forward, that is a lifting body, and it produces 35% of the lift on the airplane. And so when you're cruising, your nose is about six degrees up. But just like the space shuttle was just like us, the way the shock comes off it, you get a boom, boom, very, a pretty sharp sonic boom. Now, the space shuttle, I think, because of some of its its size, uh, bigger than the uh, more surface area than the SR, so the boom would have been a little bit stronger. But we sometimes overflew heads of state when they were greeting each other. Um, and we called it the sound of freedom. But it was basically send a message that, um, you know, you're doing things counter to uh, U.S. policy. And um, there was a time I know there was Fidel Castro, I think, was meeting Brezhnev. I didn't do the flight, but uh, I've been told about it, where basically the shock was about, I think, as I recall, 45 seconds behind us. So you time it. And. I can tell you, having been a wing commander in Europe, when you're entertaining the president coming to visit the chancellor of Germany, just like anywhere else in the world, it's a very controlled ceremony. So if if you get uh, knowledge that uh, Brezhnev is going to meet Khrushchev, uh, Khrushchev uh, Castro at 11 o'clock, at 11 o'clock typically, because they're as punctual, typically as punctual as, as we were on ceremonies like that, You'd have an airplane sitting on the tarmac in Havana, and the door would be opening, and these two heads of state would be greeting each other. So you, you know, you time it to come across to, <laughs> a few minutes later, and uh, I understand from the picture there's two heads of state looking up, saying, uh, "Don't you? Uh, what's that up there?" <laughs> We're watching. I love it. I mean, that's uh, that's it's it kind of gives you the impression that um, obviously America at this time was so far technically at ahead of the rest of the world did they did they know how far behind they were they knew they were behind but did they have any inclination of just how uh far behind they were i think they had an idea um and they tried to make their uh fox bat the mig 25 into kind of a reconnaissance vehicle but it never had the capability it couldn't cruise like we could for, you know, an hour 15, an hour and a half. 
um, to be able to get those capabilities. But I don't know for sure, but I'm my guess is that they kind of decided that the what would be required to develop something like the SR-71 uh, would be more than they would want to do. That there were other areas where they would rather focus on uh, more tactical fighters and missiles and things like along those lines for their defense policy uh, per se. My buddy, you know, uh, my co-host Jake here, who is actually listening, he's 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 on the line too. He's kind of listening to the us. Silent listener here. Silent listener. Um, well, we we kind of <laughs> we kind of talked a little bit about before we called you is is that we were comparing the Soviet Union to just being like a big burly guy. Like he, he might not be the smartest guy, but he can still knock you out. And it doesn't matter the size of our pocket calculator that we have over here in America. They were still extremely dangerous. And yes. it, it's, it's something that um, they spent most of their money on military back then because of their deficit in, in, in intelligence and technological capability. They just dumped as much money into brawn as they possibly could. And uh, with a dictatorial society like that, they also had some other great disadvantages that um, they didn't have that many. You know, even though the SR was designed with slide rules because computers were not uh, far enough along in maturity. So basically, desk, desk calculators and slide rules designed the SR very much like the Mercury capsule uh, for our space program. And they did it you fast. Know? And they Un- did it unlike fast. today, where we have computers that calculate the entire plane in like five seconds, but it still takes years to do anything. <laughs> yeah, well, then it gets back to the you know the whole committee overlooking everything, and the Russians because of their paranoia, there was really very little cross sharing across their society. So if you were doing a development in one area, in uh, let's say a university coming up. And you're doing another area in a military project. If they had computers to use, they weren't sharing because of the uh, security issues. As a matter of fact, uh, the source of of stealth for us, believe it or not, was a Lockheed. And I, I can't remember his, his name, but he's uh, famous in the uh, Skunk Works. And I can't remember if he came to Kelly or if he came to Ben Rich, but he'd come across a uh, Soviet professor's paper. And he said, you know, I think this guy's got something. Well, it turns out this Soviet professor had done all this calculation on how you could develop a stealthy airplane and offered it to the Soviet Air Force, and they weren't interested. And they were so uninterested, they said, oh, go ahead and publish it. We don't care. You know, there's nothing here that's of any interest. Well, it got published, got translated, and the radar technician who was trying to reduce the radar on the on the U-2. Once you build an airplane, it you are stuck with the general shape. It's really hard. Um like when we try to reduce the the radar cross section, make it more uh, harder to see. Like of an uh, an F sixteen. Well, an F sixteen by itself is about one square meter. So if you shine radar against it, about effectively an area of of uh, seven square meters of energy will reflect back. Well, even if you if you work to reduce it, you're only going to get it down to about one. 
And one is the, is the radar cross-section, if you can imagine, of the SR-71, because it was designed with the idea, because Eisenhower's number one criteria, he wanted an airplane, because after Powers was seen, actually it wasn't Powers, on the flight over Moscow, when we were surprised that the Russians could see the U-2 and track it at 70,000 feet, and then when they saw the pictures of the surface-to-air missiles ringing not only Moscow, but some of the major areas, there was a special commission. They came back to the president, and they said, um, you know, this is what we see. And he, he uh, directed them to further study and said, come back with what we need to do, because I have to c collect information on what the Russians are doing, because it's a closed society. So they came back about a year later. This is in 1957. The overflight of Moscow was in the 4th, 5th of July of 1956. And um, basically said, we need an airplane that flies at Mach 3, not, not 450 miles an hour, 2150, not at 70,000 feet, but 80, 85,000 feet. And the A-12 was actually up at 90,000 feet at times. and we need America's first stealthy airplane. Well, th what's interesting is that you think of the word stealth, right? We're all familiar with the word stealth. But back then, stealth was basically like sneaking into your house after dark, right? Yes. So you don't disturb your parents. That was like as stealthy as anything got back then because everything was loud, apparent. You know, everything just – there was no stealth technology of any kind at that time. So that was Eisenhower's – and Kelly, in his notes – it's it's clear there that and he had expressed it that if we couldn't get a low radar return out of the SR seventy one, uh, Eisenhower is probably not going to approve it. And they got it done. You know, you've seen, probably seen pictures of the SR seventy one uh, model, a, a full size model on a stick, and they're shining radar against it to try to figure out how much reflectivity, and we're able to prove that yes, the the radar was. Uh, cross-section was low enough that we think it's going to be difficult, not impossible, but difficult for them to uh, track us, which was what it was. Now, getting back to that article, the radar uh, expert gets with Ben Rich, and I think Kelly gives, gives him 20, $25 million to work on some stuff, and uh, Kelly was very much against it. And Ben, this this really became Ben's project, which would become the 117. Right. And lo and behold, the the Russian professor's equations work, and they make. If you look at the 117, it's a whole series of of panels, plates that are set at different angles, so that the radar, the way it hits, is is for the most part going to reflect away. It's not going to reflect back to the uh, source of the energy. And the 117 is what I would say truly the first stealthy airplane. Uh, I mean, the SR was stealthy, but not by today's terms. Right. I mean, when you look at the 117, you look at the F-22, the B-2, uh, and now I'm sure the the B-21 will be uh, very much in that same same class of uh, very low uh, reflectivity uh, of the radar. I think what really surprises a lot of people is the you think about the airplane, the SR-71 and the U-2, um, and the technology that 
you could build a light airplane that could fly that high. You could build an SR out of titanium that could fly at uh, tremendous speeds and be able to uh, deal with the heat. But you're flying at, let's say, 15 or 16 miles up. You're doing 35 miles a minute. And, Chris, you get out of your car in Minneapolis on a clear day, and I fly over. I will see you, and I can tell you pretty close to what kind of car you're driving. You know, think about that. I can't recognize your face. And we're thinking about, we have to put this in perspective of the time in which it's done. Nobody's pulling up Google Maps and being like, oh, that's my house right there. There's the there, there's exactly my boat right. parked out next to the garage that I haven't worked on in however many years. It's not quite like that. This is this is un, this is unbelievable. Like coming back for the first time, you know, when the first U-2 or the first SR went over, the Soviet Union came back with pictures. Guys must have just been like running to the room to develop the film immediately to see the results because it was just so fresh and so new. To give me an idea... The resolution was two, uh, two to four inches, sometimes a little better. It, it just depended. Are you talking about the size of the film itself? No, the, the film, like the nose camera film, like the, when I flew the mission for, uh, I had a nose camera and with the conflict between Saudi Arabia and Yemen. Um, and we used what we called the, the we called it the country's camera. I can't remember the exact de designation, but it was a pan camera. So every picture effectively is 72 miles wide and it's two miles long along the track that you're flying the roll of film is two miles long the film is five inches wide wow so it takes hours like i talked to some of the the mission that i was just referencing there was 1979 in march when the president our satellites were not in the right position. We couldn't see what was going on in the South Arabian Peninsula. So uh, we took one airplane and two crews, and it was lucky that uh, the mission was going to be nine hours and 45 minutes long because the French wouldn't let us overfly. So we had to go around. I had to fly around Portugal and uh, Spain through Gibraltar all the way down. It was five refuelings. Flew along the whole border between Yemen and uh, Saudi Arabia to see where the armies were aligned and what they were doing. And when we got back in England, they had they downloaded the cameras, downloaded the recorders, put it on a waiting airplane, flew it across the Atlantic in a normal airplane. So that's probably seven hours. Delivered it downtown Washington, D.C., where they processed it. And when you got film that's almost two miles long, because uh, we ran it along the whole border, because uh, we could film if we ran the camera for an hour, like when the when the aircraft set the record from Los Angeles to the Uverhazi, LAX to Uverhazi, 64 minutes. If you'd had the camera on, you would have filmed over 100,000 square miles in the United States. <laughs> Imagine being the guy that has to sit there and look through all that, too. Man. Well, that's exactly that's exactly right. I mean, that's a, a, a huge undertask taking. Uh, you know, post-mission, I mean, our part, uh, I won't say it was easy, but our part was over. And now you've got uh, men and women going through trying to uh, sift through uh, the intelligence. And, and what sense did it make? You know, that it turns out there were supposed to be three missions. And my mission, not through anything I did, but just the way that they planned the mission, they got everything they needed. So, um we flew one mission over there and uh, waited for 
oh, I think 10 days until the president and the people around them were happy that they had what they needed. Uh, and they were doing diplomatically whatever they were doing to try to, uh, you know, draw it down. Now, sometimes I, I'm wondering on you, but that's uh, all right. We got plenty the, of the time. People, the people would be interested. Sometimes we were used as the target. I have come back from missions. And, uh, we call that bait. The, <laughs> uh, that's right. High-speed bait. And uh, I, there'd be some people in the room that I weren't familiar with, or, or maybe I was familiar with, and I said, you know, why are you like the head of the NSA for the Far East? I said, you know, why are you here? He said, well, we were just trying to see what kind of a reaction did you get out of the Russians today? And I said, well, it was normal. You know, the radar sites came up because the Russians, they really wanted to shoot down an SR. And so okay. when when we would show up, when other U.S. or allied reconnaissance vehicles would come in the areas something where we flew, um, they wouldn't necessarily react to them. We'd go through and they would come up with, in a couple cases, during a debrief, uh, we were told, well, yeah, we told the Russians, uh, the air attache in Moscow yesterday gave them the information at what time you were going to be up there today. And we were hoping to get a really good reaction out of them. <laughs> They're just dangling you out there. So, and then when we do that at times, we would time it. So we called it a coordinated mission. It would be timed in such a way that we'd be the stimulant. There'd be satellites overhead that happen to be passing. There'd be other airplanes, there'd be ships at sea, and there'd be land sites, different different numbers. The most I ever had was like 28 different types of sensors were collecting. Uh, when I was, that mission was coming along a lot of Vostok, heading up the, uh, then heading up the Kuril, uh, or the uh, Kamchatka P Peninsula per se, and just looking for more reactions, like MiG-25s coming up, the, the SAM sites coming up, because they really felt, I mean, we weren't 100% invulnerable, in but pretty close to that. Did they know that you didn't really have an armament? Armament? Did they know that there was no bombs on the plane? Or were they assuming that you could, because they didn't know anything, right? So they, for all they knew, you could have had a, a nuclear weapon on the plane. Um, not likely a nuclear weapon, but they, we could have had missiles because it had been released. You know, there were three variants, the YF-12A. That was the interceptor version of the, what would have been the SR-7 uh, from the Blackbird family. And it was the idea that they were going to have supersonic bombers come over to the North Pole and come in, and we needed something with a quick reaction. So they actually developed and did test work and actually did um, firings of a long-range missile that uh, you could launch at Mach 3. So you're, you're launching a missile at Mach 3, and now you're boosting it with a, uh, a rocket motor. Um, it had tremendous range. It knocked down airplanes uh, uh, out beyond 100 miles uh, because it was looking down. And I, I told you that I was the funding guy for a number of uh, black programs that back then I couldn't talk about. Now I can. And... Okay. Very cleverly. So let me just ask for a second. What is it like to go around every day with all of a bunch of secrets? Do you just walk around just like you wonder if you can talk to people? I mean, is, was it was it difficult on personal relationships having a lot of secrets and classified information all the time? Um, 
you you had to obviously respect the the uh, secrets that you carried, and uh, in the interest of the of the United States Air Force, but also the country, and there were black programs like when the 117 hadn't been released because it had to be released from President Reagan. He was the release authority that we could actually decompartmentalize it. We could admit that we had it, but there were going to be parts of it were still going to remain secret. There's still parts of it today that are secret, Chris. Um, when you, I hope you and Jet get a chance to talk to each other, but there's going to be things he, he is not going to be able to talk about. Where in my case, there's very little. And the parts of the SR that I can't talk about, I don't even know how they work. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know how we defeated the missiles like we did. I know in a general sense that so we denied them the ability to talk, but there were techniques to make that happen. And I have no idea how that, you know, how the electronic magic uh, worked per se. But um, in what I was going to get back to, they canceled the, the YFO in April, McNamara did. Uh, for a couple of reasons. One, when you're in a spacesuit, <laughs> you know, when fighter pilots sit alert in fighter airplanes in the United States, even today, they're wearing not street clothes, but they're wearing normal flight gear. Yep. Um, you can't be in if you're going to fly at that altitude, you've got to be in a pressure suit, spacesuit. Well, once you get in a spacesuit, it's like. You've, I don't know if you've ever been to the gym, you wanted to lose some weight, and you put on that rubber suit and got in there. Well, the liner of a spacesuit is a rubber liner. And once you get in there, on a normal flight, uh, two and a half to four and a half hours, I'd lose two to three pounds. You know, that was just normal. We all did. And that plane is uh, hot, too. I mean. Well, you're hot, but you, you've got air conditioning coming into you. But the fact is, you could only stay in the suit a certain length of time and, and you're just you're just slowly dehydrating and you're not going to run out in that suit. You know, uh, fighters sometimes, uh, particularly in, like in South Korea and other places, uh, we had American uh, fighters on alert at times and they were on five minute alert. That means from the time you hear the klaxon, you're in the cockpit and you're starting the engines and you're heading out almost immediately to the runway. Well, you can't start the blackbird engines like that so they determined like we would start engines 30 minutes before takeoff because that would give us enough time to start both engines and do all the checks and taxi out to the end of the runway get checked at the end of the runway to make sure that nothing had uh, the main thing we hadn't punctured any tire uh, our tires were really sensitive so it, it wasn't a quick reaction vehicle so they went ahead and decided to cancel it. They weren't going to. But the missile that they developed that came from Hughes was absolutely amazing. And what they did very cleverly with, without revealing, because this was before the YF-12A had really become a, known to the public. They went to the Navy and said, hey, you know, we understand you're, you're developing a, a fleet uh, fighter, you know, supersonic, and you might be looking for a, a long range uh, missile. We, these guys at Hughes have been tinkering in their garage, you know, some some silly story. Right. The Falcon missile is the missile that was developed for the A-12. Yeah, I'm looking and at so, a picture of it here. I mean, it's, it's it looks like a serious piece of machinery. It's big. It's big. Huge. It's big. So at, when you're launching it at Mach 3 in the boost, you can get it over 100 miles. 
that Navy pilot can launch that missile and, and hit an airplane at 50 miles. You know, most of our missiles, like when I had a fighter squadron, our heat-seeking missiles were good out to 10 or 12 miles, and our radar missiles were probably not much beyond 20 miles. So now you've got this humongous missile that the Tomcat carried, the, F, the, the F-14, uh, that could reach out, you know, for fleet defense. That was amazing, and its source had been with the uh, the a-12 program. Right. The navigation system on our airplane came from England. We're talking it, about the SR now, the, the navigation the system that tells you where you where you are when you're going, like you're tra- traversing a ton of ground, and it's probably hard to keep track of where you are. That's exactly right. And you're not thinking so much of where you are. You're thinking about where you're going to be in a minute, two minutes, because if you have an emergency – where you are right now is it's interesting, but it's not significant. It's where you're, you, where you're heading. They would come out an hour, 45, two hours before we would come out to start engines and they would load all the information into this master computer. It weighed about 350 pounds. I'd kid people today that would probably do Apple watches because think about what computers were like in the sixties and the seventies. Right. Uh, they were pretty bulky, but it had, it's uh, absolutely amazing. It was an astro tracker. So part of what the information they put in was a catalog of about 59 of the brightest stars in the sky. And so every hangar that had an SR in it had a geodetic marker that said, this is exactly where this location is on the face of the earth. And they would tell the computer, they would tell the onboard computer, give them that information. You'd start the engines up. You're ready to go. If you, tax- you just turn a key to start the thing up? I mean, is it just you pop the key in the ignition switch and turn it? Or how does this thing fire No, because uh, the engines weighed 6,000 pounds. Uh, they were originally designed for the Navy and then extensively modified when Kelly needed. He originally wanted to have an engine that burned hydrogen, but pretty soon discovered that that wasn't going to work that all the problems and refueling and everything it just wasn't so they found this navy engine that uh wasn't going to work because it was too big when they got through the development and they put the bypass tubes now there's six bypass tubes that come off the fourth stage compressor and the significance of that is is that up to mach 2 about 1400 miles an hour these engines are like normal fighter engines that we had at a thousand miles an hour 1.6 mach there's no engine that can absorb supersonic air so what happens is you have to adjust the airflow in the sr-71 it's a spike in the in the f-15 or the f-4 there's a there's a uh, a baffle that's helps slow the uh, air down so that when it hits the first stage compressor there's no longer supersonic at Mach 2, all of a sudden, you're getting more air right at that compressor than the engine can swallow. So these bypass tubes start opening up, and the fellow that was the lead designer from Pratt Whitney on this, a guy by the name of uh, Bob Abernathy, who has four patents on this engine because it was so revolutionary, you start bypassing air. Now, initially, he was turned down. 
and they couldn't get engines that would work at the get them up to the speed they wanted. Eventually convinced them. And and what came out of it is the bypassed air, now the engine changed from being a turbojet to a turbo bypass jet. Think in terms, just you can also use the term turbo ram. Because at the high speed, at 3.2 Mach, 80% of the air is not going through the engine. It's going around the engine, directly into the afterburner. And it turns out that it's we're, we were the only airplane in the world, and I think that's the, still the case today. The faster we went, the less fuel we burned. Because the ram effect that the engine could create was more significant than the compressor part of it. And so the ram type of function on the engine increasingly as you got more and more air going through that burned less and less fuel and the engine wasn't the limiting factor of the speed right i mean that the it's not like you were wide open throttle and and 3.3 was as fast as you could go the the limiting factor was other things temperature in the front cockpit critical inlet temperature 427 centigrade which is about 830 degrees and that had to do with the the in the integrity of the engine it, it had less to do with the uh temperature but it also told us the temperature stress that the airframe of the sr was getting so you were right if you were in extremely cold air 3.3 might not be your limit but during the test program lou shop who did the testing for the uh, original a12 airplane uh he used to live not too far from where I live here in Virginia. And he told me on one or two of the missions or test missions, they actually got the airplane up to uh, 3.5 Mach. And, um, but the airplane was so unstable that they said, this is not where you want to be. And when you go to a bypass uh, arrangement like the SR had, you could have something called an unstark. And uh, what that is, it's a very violent thing. I had about a hundred of them. Uh, later, <laughs> in a, later, in a, later in the program, they changed from an analog control on the engine to a digital, and most of the unstarts went away. But Chris, what happens is that you've got this even flow coming in both inlets, being slowed down. The engines and the afterburner, everything's working fine. Now all of a sudden, the shock wave, which is being carried internally, it's inside the inlet. For some reason, gets spit out. It's like a backfire. Like a backfire. It's exactly right. One engine is now producing 100% thrust. The other engine is producing somewhere between 15 to 25% thrust. So the airplane starts a violent yaw, and I mean a violent yaw, so violent that one time it broke my sun visor on my spacesuit because the canopy hit me. I was uh, trying to. <laughs> trying to work another problem when this problem came up. And if it repeats, it could actually bend the airplane, which in the, that particular case, when I broke my helmet visor, it did. Uh, and the slice could be so severe that it could also pitch up on you. And at the higher speeds, Kelly Johnson and the aerodynamicist determined that at 3.5 Mach, if you had an unstart, you're probably going to lose the airplane. There's not enough flight control to be able to overcome that violent move of the airplane. And since the airplane, it's low G uh, because it has to expand. When you go from a cold airplane 
to a fully heated airplane, it is now four to five inches longer and an inch or two wider because it has expanded because of the heating. And so when we're at full speed, we can only pull 1.7 Gs. That's a 45 degree bank turn. You've had more Gs on a roller coaster than we can pull at altitude. Because we all say, well, how are the Gs up there? Well, if the airplane's performing like we like it to, it's kind of like being in a nice Beamer or Cadillac, you know? (laughs) (laughs) It can be a very smooth ride. All the sound is behind you because you're three times the speed of sound. And uh, and not that you're laying back and uh, because you had to keep constant attention to make sure the airplane was doing exactly what it was supposed to. Um, Until you have one of these these problems, the unstart, where it throws your your head into the wall and well, and the air and the uh, cockpit, the the instruments, the airplane could be shaking so badly you can't read the instruments. So you kind of get an indication um, if you're flying the airplane for a little while, is which way did your butt move? Because that tells you which side. And fortunately, from the early pilots, the test pilots who really had to endure this and figure out how to fix it, we had an automatic recovery system, and didn't always work. But what happens now is when one side unstarts the other one sympathetically unstarts and so you it tries to keep the airplane f- symmetrical so yeah. it's still flying straight it's not slicing as as violently on you and then the inlet they try to hopefully it was just a an air disturbance or something that caused it and you try to let it go through the process reset itself and if you're let's say you're mach 3 you have an unstart it goes into the auto sequence you're probably going to lose you know five hundredths of a mock, maybe a tenth of a mock at most um, in the recovery. The engines rarely flamed out. What normal what often happened is the afterburner went out. So then you had to relight your afterburner. Uh, so on the Buzz, particular- I I remember reading that the fuel used on these is actually not that combustible. It's it's more of a, a- relatively safe fuel to use because of all the issues they had. And is it true then that there was a secondary fuel if you did have a full flame out? There was a secondary, there was a, the starter. You're exactly right. Cause normal jet fuel ignites at, that you and I fly on a commercial or the military uses the vapors. You can ignite it at minus 40 degrees. So there's a lot of vapor JP seven, you've got to get it above 170 degrees. So if I had a bucket of it and I gave you a blowtorch, I could probably come back in a half hour and you still wouldn't have gotten it to light. When we started the engines, each engine had a special tank on it and it was full uh, filled with a a chemical called triethylene borate. It's called TEB. If you've seen in the movies, when you see the SR engine um, start, you see this green flame. That's the boron that's in there. When that chemical hits the air, I'm, the EPA probably wouldn't permit it today. When that <laughs> chemical hits the air, it explodes at 3,000 degrees. So think about that's your that's your igniter. And once the fuel is lit, it burns wonderfully. Like our tankers, um, they, they couldn't use it in the traffic pattern. They couldn't use it for takeoff, obviously. They couldn't use it when they're coming into land because even with a hot engine, if they had an engine flame out, with an electric starter, they probably couldn't get the fuel restarted. So, but in route, if they needed some more fuel, they could burn our fuel. It'll, it'll go in their engines and, and burn. It, it, would, it would be fine, but it's 
it was the type that um and so when when we lit the afterburner the same thing happened as like when we started the airplane a shot of this chemical would go into the afterburner section to make sure we got a clean light. It sounds like uh, you're hitting nitrous on the on the quarter mile track. You just <laughs> pop that switch, flip the switch on, and away you go. Exactly right. No, it's a it's, a, it's an amazing process. You watch them when they load the stuff; they're all in these big moon like fire suits, and the fire fire engine is sitting right beside the airplane as they're loading this stuff into the uh, into the special tanks on the engine. But because it was really some pretty nasty stuff. What How is, much of this was on board? Like, did you have to be concerned about running out of this and then having a flame out? Yes. Because, okay. Yes. On, on each throttle, you had a counter. And the counter guaranteed you 16 shots of this chemical. There's normally more than that, but not, not much more. So when you started the engine, each engine, you used your first shot. When you were at the end of the runway and took off, you used your second shot. Now, when you went up, and refueled now behind a tanker, you're not going to be an afterburner. So as you get to the full tanks position, you drop off, and now you're going to light your afterburner again so you can accelerate and climb. You use your third shot or your fourth shot. My longest mission uh, happened to be uh, from Northern California to the north coast of Russia to look for some submarines. And it was 10 hours and 20 minutes, uh, probably close to 15,000 miles, uh, five refuelings. So on that mission, I used six shots from each in, uh, from each uh, uh, ignition tank. Do you get to bring um, a snack with you on, on a 10-hour? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there's no in-flight service. We get like pretzels when I'm on Delta Airlines. Would you guys get to bring a snack? You, you, you carried something that looked like a tube of toothpaste. It had a tube on it that you could screw into it. And on the right side of your helmet, where you could also get water, we carried always carried water because I told you, you know, you're going to dehydrate because you're breathing 100% oxygen, which dehydrates you. So both of these things, you're trying to keep yourself uh, hydrated. So in the shade there, you would screw this tube into the thing that looked like a tube of uh, toothpaste. You'd break the seal and then put the tube through the side of your helmet because there was a valve and turn your head in the helmet. And uh, now the food selection is much better. Back then, our basic bill of fare, you had sloppy joes, beef and gravy. Um, I didn't like either one of them. So I used to carry butterscotch pudding, uh, vanilla pudding. I carried applesauce and I carried peaches. So typically on long missions, about every two hours, uh, I would take out one of these tubes, you know, if I was flying more than five hours, if I wasn't flying more than five hours, I didn't carry any food because when you came in to fly two and a half hours before you're going to take off, you had a physical, you had to pass. You then had a meal, like you've seen the astronauts. It was the same for us, high protein, low box steak and eggs. I couldn't tell you how many of those meals I had. And then the, Crew chief would come out and tell you the status of the airplane. Your backup crew would uh, give you an hour 15 prior. You'd go down. Each of us had two complete suits. They were they were basically Gemini-type suits initially. Uh, later on, we got an advanced suit. You'd put on cotton long johns because you're going to perspire uh, somewhat. And that would help the technicians when they turned the suit at the end of the day, uh, per se. The suit would be laying out on the floor. You come in through the back. It's like putting on coveralls. 
And you always had two people with you, one on either side to help you, but also to make sure that everything was going right. So you put your legs through and then you put your arms through the sleeves and then they'd pick up the helmet ring because then you duck your head down. You're coming through the back of the suit and then you'd stand up and the helmet ring would come down on your shoulder. And then they start because the largest seal on these suits, which weigh about 45 pounds, is a big seal in the back that they zipper up. And then they go through the configurations. Eventually, you're going to put on cotton surgical gloves because your gloves you're going to wear, they don't want your fingernails to dig into the rubber liner because they have to be inflatable too if you lose cabin pressure or have to eject. So then you put on your helmet, which weighs 10 pounds, and there's an inner liner that come, that you that you control down the seals around your face because you're going to breathe 100% oxygen. And unlike the Russians, who learned a terrible lesson, when we exhaled, that went down into the suit. The Russians came up with this clever idea of using nitrogen gas to cool the astronaut in the suit. And I know of at least one case, and there may have been more than one case, where the suit became overpressurized. Nitrogen came up into the... Uh, face cavity of the astronaut and they suffocate oh man so um these two technicians are going to be with you all through doing all the tests because eventually when they get you completed completely suited up they're going to put you in a chair and they're going to test your communication they're going to test the inflation of the suits are there any leaks there's it's what's called allowable leaks they pressurize it to like five and a half psi and then have you hold your breath to see, are we losing much air? Because you're going to lose a little, but but not much. So just like and the then, plane, you're allowed to leak a little bit. <laughs> that's right. And then just like uh, definitely what you guys are living through right now, you turn on your defog because there's moisture in your breath. So that glass visor that's coming down has a, a, a fine gold mesh in it that heats to keep the moisture off. Cause if, if you don't, uh, within a couple minutes, you've, you've fogged up like you do in the car. So, uh, so I'm imagining you on this 10 hour flight. So you left to go look at some, some submarines and you yes. know, you got a lot going on. You're getting all that stuff figured out. You're, you're getting checked out. You get on the, you get on the plane, you take off, you're on your way. You've got a couple of, you, you probably have four or five refuelings on your way over there or maybe every, every two, every, every two hours. Okay. So you got some refuelings, but in between these times, you're completely and utterly alone. And I like well, you that. Got the, you got the guy in the back. You get, you get your navigator. Your okay. RS, your, so, you know, we would talk. Um, where, we would, where we were the quietest was when we were, what we say, in the take area. Because he's concentrating to make sure looking at defensive systems. I'm looking, making sure the airplane is doing exactly, even more so than just routinely, uh, He's checking the cameras to make sure that they're coming on uh, when they're supposed to and everything else. And uh, it also, if something should occur at that time, when either one of you break silence, they, the other one immediately is you have their attention because obviously there's something that they want you to know. And they wouldn't be bringing up saying, what do you think about the Yankees? It's, you know, this system's not working or I, I just got a, just got this or that. But like when we went into the Middle East and we're, we're cruising along at 
Oh, let's see. We're probably at 82,000 feet going by Cairo, and the two of us are looking out the window going, hey, look at that. There's the Sphinx. There's the Great Pyramids. Right. What a what a deal! <laughs> it's it's just I I I just imagine the 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 feeling of you said it's kind of quiet. It has has there ever been anything else in your life that's ever given you even close to this type of experience? No. So you do no, you miss I... it? All right, that's where we're going to clip it for today, and we're going to release the rest of the episode tomorrow. But before we go. <laughs> First of all, I've got one more thing for you. But before I give you that, I want you to subscribe to the podcast. Yeah. Hit that subscribe button. Leave us a five-star review. And I'm going to leave you today with the sound of freedom. <laughs>